It's Thursday the 19th of January and from the heart of the World Economic Forum's annual meeting 2023, this is Radio Davos. We risk what I've called the Great Fracture, the decoupling of the world's two largest economies. At a Davos meeting whose theme is collaboration in a fragmented world, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres warns of a rising polarization. Tectonic drift that would create two different sets of trade rules, two dominant currencies, two internets, and two conflicting strategies on artificial intelligence. This is the last thing we need. And as global climate change is being felt more and more around the world, he makes clear his opposition to continued fossil fuel exploration. This insanity belongs in science fiction, yet we know the ecosystem meltdown is cold, hard, scientific fact. With war still raging in Ukraine, we speak to the foreign minister of another former Soviet Union country, Lithuania. War in Ukraine is not a regional issue. It touches every region in the world, it touches every country. I'm still hopeful that it's possible to have a global answer to what's happening in Ukraine. And come with me through the Congress Center to look at artworks painted by refugees around the world that carry a message for the people here in Davos. It's pretty crazy in the sense that, that actually many of these people are not even allowed to be here. They're not even allowed to leave the locked refugee camps that they're in. So how can we have their voice heard here? Get daily coverage of Davos 2023 on Radio Davos, follow the action live at wf.ch slash wef23. I'm Robin Pomeroy at Davos. From the World Economic Forum, this is Radio Davos. Welcome to Radio Davos and welcome to Davos to my co-host today, Azim Azhar. Azim, how are you? I am doing very well. A little bit cold, but very happy. Good. It's quite warm in the Radio Davos studio here. It is really nice and warm here. I've been able to take my fleece off. (laughs) Okay, make yourself at home. Um, Azim writes the hugely influential weekly newsletter, Exponential View, and he hosts the podcast of the same name. And he's written a book on the same subject. I mean, what is this word exponential? You use it in everything you do. What is it about? I I do use it in in everything I do. Uh, It's really about... uh, Technologies in particular that uh, improve really, really rapidly. Uh, they, they improve at 10, 20, 30, 50% every year for many, many, many years. And it, uh, when you plot that on a chart, uh, it has that, that telltale curve. It's flat at the beginning. There's a, there's a kink and inflection point, and then it goes off vertical and a little bit crazy. Um, give us an example of one of those technologies where that has happened already. Well, I mean, the best example is the one that sits in our, our pockets. It's our, our mobile phones, which are based on computer chips. Uh, and computer chips have essentially uh, doubled in performance every couple of years for about 60 or 70 years. And, and that's why you know, our phones today are more powerful than the most powerful supercomputers of 30 years ago. There's that cliche about your washing machine has more technology than the rocket that went to the moon, right? It's always the Paul rocket that went to the moon, which was an amazing computer. Uh, Partly the the people, the team that worked on it ended up launching the discipline of software engineering. And it's always besmirched in these (laughs) these analogies. I I do the same myself, but it is quite remarkable. Um, So welcome to Davos. Um, Are you a Davos veteran, a Davos newbie? Uh, this is my first time, and uh, I have to say that for all the advice I was given about it, uh, nothing quite prepares you for the buzz and the opportunity and the experience and, and frankly, the lack of food, which I've also been contending with. I just grabbed a cookie on the way over here from the Media Village. Oh, is that where the cookies are? Right, yeah, thank you for that. There's, there's yeah. a little store, look out for it. <laughs> I mean, has anything so far surprised you? You know, have you bumped into anyone or you've heard anything? There are so many experiences, Robin, it's really hard to, to pick one out. It's, a, it's the gestalt 
of it all. It's that that sense of of, of the buzz, the the conversations. Uh, you feel a little bit like a a, a, a young dog in a forest and there's a squirrel there there's a squirrel over there there's a squirrel over there and it feels a bit like that and then you realize you you have friends i mean i've been in business and my sort of work line of work for more than 25 years so i know a few people and i see some of them here that's fantastic uh, the a couple of the panels um, that I've managed to attend, and dare I say it, the one that I hosted uh, on Generative AI uh, a, a couple of days ago, have been really, really good and really insightful. And I think the thing that strikes me is that when you get away from the noise of media headlines and you come here and you see the newsmakers talking sort of calmly, often about quite contentious issues, it actually does make you feel a little bit more optimistic. There's capability, there's capacity, there's compassion, there's care. And you sort of see that happen in, in, the, in these panels and in these conversations. I mean, people are quite earnest about it. And then, of course, we'll, you know, in a month's time, we'll be back to our normal news cycle. Uh, but that has surprised me positively. I'm really interested on how you communicate difficult, complex subjects. I mean, you've got a massive readership for your newsletter. Mm. People misunderstand AI and misunderstand all these technologies. Of course we do. How, yeah. do, you, how do you make it a bit easier for people? I, uh, I think you have to simplify things. So when I'm with specialists, they're often a little bit annoyed at how much I've simplified what it is, what it is they do. But I tend to be someone who tries to come up with, uh, with, a, with a framework. And my framework, one of my frameworks is technologies are getting cheaper. And what happens when something gets cheaper? Well, we buy more of it. And, and so I, I just have these simple kind of quite processes that are described in, in simple English. But I think the other thing that's really helpful is to be able to have um, historical analogy. And I don't think there's a shortcut to that. So I've read a lot of history. I've been in the industry for 25 years. And what that allows me to do is to go back to precedents that might be more relevant to people. So if we're talking about AI, maybe I could also talk about the speed with which cars took over from horses as the main way of getting around American cities in the turn of the 20th century. I think those things can sometimes help people feel, feel more at ease. And your podcast, it's on hold at the moment. Um, I hope it's coming back because it's, it's a fantastic thing. If, but you've got a pretty big back catalogue. If you could pick out one episode for people to go back and find, which would it be? Yeah, we had 150 or so episodes. My favourite go-to episode is one with a, a gentleman who was the second most senior military man um, in the British Armed Forces, uh, Sir Richard Barons, General Sir Richard Barons, four-star general in American parlance. Uh, and he and I talked about the intersection between these types of technologies and what it would mean for, for conflict. And by these types of technologies, I mean things like, like drones, for example, and cyber attacks and sort of grey war and disinformation. And that podcast is probably three years old now, but it's so relevant to the post-February 24th world that we, that we live in. And Richard is, is brilliant because he's a ferociously intelligent man. He's also a man who served uh, in, on active duty in several different continents. So sort of no nonsense uh, about that. And I love that podcast. He's very funny. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I'm a child of the Cold War. Uh, I, I grew up where, and remember being in the UK when the cruise missiles and the Pershing twos were, were being put in Europe. Uh, and so there were bits of me that wanted to sort of be a bit, play a bit of Top Gun uh, with Sir Richard. And, and I was able to do that in that podcast. I absolutely love it. Uh, I think your listeners would love it too. I haven't heard it. I'll go, but I'll definitely go back yeah. and check it out. Thanks for that. Well, let's look at some of the sessions today. We've got special addresses 
11.30 today, the president of Korea. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the prime minister of Greece. I've looked through the sessions to see if there's one that might be of particular interest to you, Azim, and I picked out one called, it's at nine o'clock, the age of net zero energy technologies. That's an area I know you're interested in, right? I'm absolutely fascinated by it because we obviously need to get to net zero. Uh, and these technologies are big, lumbering and heavy, and we need lots of them. So I'm trying to work out whether the dynamics that played out with electric vehicles or with computers, which is they got cheap very quickly and then we bought lots of them, <laughs> putting it simply, could also play out with these much heavier, more complex uh, net zero tech technologies. And I'm reasonably new to the area, so I want to hear some experts and practitioners talk about the reality of where these technologies are and the, the, the reality of what it will take to scale them. Can we afford it in terms of materiality? Can we afford it in terms of dollars? I think the answer, by the way, to the first two questions, those two questions is, yes, we can afford the materials. Yes, we can afford the, the financial cost because what we don't have is time. So I'm looking forward to, to that session a great deal. So there are four CEOs working in that field in that session at nine o'clock this morning. It's called the Age of Net Zero Energy Technologies. Okay, at 1.15, tech power and cooperation. It is moderated by Alison Snyder of Axios, formerly, um, she's co-hosted a podcast with me before. The Vice Prime Minister, who's involved in digital transformation of Ukraine. The President of Global Affairs at Google, Kent Walker. Brett Solomon of uh, Access Now. And Genevieve Bell, Professor at the School of Cyber Cybernetics at the Australian National University. Well, that will be quite a cracking session. I've heard Genevieve speak a number of times and the, the Ukrainian minister as well. I've, I've sort of followed what they, they've been doing. It's such an important uh, area. One of the things I think we've got wrong over the past 20 or 30 years has been how we've understood the relationship of technology as power, technology as political power, how it evokes that power and how that power needs to be managed, checked and balanced. And the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. It's great that we're having these conversations now. It's great that we're able to bring together people with very different perspectives because the Ukrainians obviously have used technology and digital technologies really to keep their country running uh, over the past year. Uh, and that is a different way of looking at the problem because actually in some of the advanced economies, historically, or for the last few years, we've sort of seen tech power largely in negative terms. So I think that will be a really, really cracking, uh, cracking panel. Great. Well, people can watch that live. It's live streamed. They can watch it on catch up. Azim, um, good luck with the rest of Davos. Tell our listeners about all of them already get your newsletter, but if they don't, where should they go to find it? Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's Exponential View. You could just pop that into your search engine of choice, or you can go to www.exponentialview.com. CEO, and we'd love to have you reading. Wonderful. Azim Azhar, thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you very much, Rob. And I'm joined on Radio Davos now by Ty Green. He's the lead for health equity at the World Economic Forum. Hi, Ty. How are you? Hi, Robin. Doing well, thanks. How are you? So you're, I'm fine, thanks. So you're lead for health equity. What is health equity? Uh, it's a good question. A lot of definitions out there, none of them are necessarily the only one, but uh, the way that we define health equity is the fair and just opportunity for everyone to fulfill their human potential in all aspects of health and well-being. Because health care is something that's very Inequal. Absolutely. Both healthcare and the drivers of health, which can be medical, but they can also be environmental, social, economic. Okay, great. So there's something happening today that you're here to tell us about. Um, 
at 10 o'clock this morning, what, what will be happening? Yep, so at 10 o'clock this morning, really exciting news. We're launching what we've called the Zero Health Gaps Pledge. So this is a CEO level commitment from 30 plus forum partners to embed health equity into their core strategies, operations, and investments. It's really sort of a signal from the business in broader community to say, we understand that we have a role to play in advancing health equity, and we're going to commit to do that moving forward. So, I mean, that sounds nice. Sound, you know, big companies say we're going to be nice about health. What do you think will actually be the impact of something like this? Certainly. So the way that we're viewing this is that there's space for philanthropy, there's space for, you know, your traditional CSR, but to create sustainable change. Corporate social responsibility. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Not heard uh, that one for a while. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And, and there's a reason for that, I okay. think. Uh, but, but the point is to, to create sustainable change, these things like health equity, like diversity and inclusion, others need to be embedded in core strategies and operations. And so what this pledge is doing is making public a, a corporate commitment from the CEO to say, we're going to look at um, you know, our, our workforce, we're going to look at our community investments, at our offerings, and take a health equity lens to every decision we make moving forward. Uh, so that's everything from measuring the impact that you have across those various domains of influence on health equity, to working with local communities to understand what their priorities are and how you can work in collaboration with them, with the public sector and others to really start advancing those those health equity priorities. And so that would go through when I asked you to define health equity, you talked about it's not just healthcare, it is the environmental side, it's pollution, it's you know the way, way people live that has an impact or where they have to live that has an impact on their health. That's exactly right. Up to 70% uh, of health outcomes are driven not by medical factors, but by non-medical factors. And I think it also gives us the opportunity to say, listen, this isn't just for healthcare companies or biopharma companies. If you're a mining company, if you're a fast-moving consumer goods company, if you're a financial services company, you have a role to play. Okay. And where can people... Um, find out more about this pledge and about your work in general. Absolutely. So if you go onto the forum website, we have a, a global health equity network website. So that's sort of the underlying body that raised this pledge. Uh, different partners, including Deloitte, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Kaiser Permanente, others who have really helped create this pledge. You can find that on the website. You can read about the pledge. If you as an organization, whether you're business, civil society, government, want to take that pledge, there's a contact information there. You can reach out to me and I'm happy to set up a call. Brilliant. Okay. Well, we'll look out for that today. Uh, Ty Green, thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. Thanks, Robin. In his address yesterday to a Davos whose theme is collaboration in a fragmented world, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres had this to say about a new superpower polarization. We risk what I've called the great fracture, the decoupling of the world's two largest economies, a tectonic drift that would create two different sets of trade rules, two dominant currencies, to internets and to conflicting strategies on artificial intelligence. This is the last thing we need. The IMF reported that dividing the global economy into two, two blocks could cut global GDP by a whopping 1.4 trillion US dollars. Now, there are many aspects in which the US and China relations will inevitably diverge, particularly on questions of human rights and on some areas of regional security. But despite that, it is possible, and I would say it is essential, for the two countries to have meaningful engagement on climate, trade, and technology, to avoid the decoupling of economies, of even the possibility of future confrontations. Addressing business and political leaders assembled in Davos, Antonio Guterres had this message on climate change. Today, 
fossil fuel producers and their enablers are still racing to expand production, knowing full well that this business model is inconsistent with human survival. Now, this insanity belongs in science fiction, yet we know the ecosystem meltdown is cold, hard scientific fact. In our interview booth, Linda Lacina continued her marathon of interviews for Meet the Leader, and this was one. Caroline Casey is the businesswoman and activist behind the Valuable 500, a campaign for businesses to be more inclusive for people with disabilities. Linda asked Caroline, who is legally blind, what was a turning point in her career? I've been in space now for 23 years as a disability activist and troublemaker. I have lived experience myself, which I hid. And I came out of the disability closet in the year 2000. There was a personal turning point to make the Valuable 500 happen. And it was my, the unexpected death of my father. And that does make you examine, well, what am I here for? But the professional reason was, when my father died, I'd been working in the space for 16 years and still disability lay on the sidelines. Still, we saw companies who were 90% of them claiming to have a comprehensive view of inclusion, only 4% of disability. And you know what? When dad died, I went, well, you know what? When I hope to go, I hope that is just got to change. So I think, and a very interesting thing, the power of grief yeah. is, a, is a great way to challenge you. And I really brought my heart into the Valuable 500 with a lot of strong evidence base. And I think that was the magic. It's bringing the head and the heart. Caroline Casey of the Valuable 500. Also yesterday, I spoke to Gabrielis Landsbergis, the foreign minister of Lithuania, an EU member state that was formerly part of the Soviet Union and a country that borders the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad. A year after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I asked Gabrielis Landsbergis for his reflections on the last 12 months. It was one of those moments where we, uh, we found ourselves in, in the situation with, uh, with a couple of words like, uh, we told you so. Um, because for three decades, um, while many of our friends and allies in the West have been rejoicing the fall of Berlin Wall and uh, uh, the end of history, as some might call, have called it, um, we were saying, look, that this is not over. Russia is still a dangerous country uh, with a dangerous ambition. And uh, it has proven to have those uh, from time to time in 2008. Even some say that in 1990s with uh, uh, Chechen war, first and then second, and then 2014 with occupation of, of um, Crimea. So, you know, we said, look, this is exactly what we've been warning you about. But then again, you know, it was the year of um, trying to assist Ukraine to win this war because in our mentality, it's uh, a war about, about us. How do you feel European unity has held up in those 12 months? It has held up. And I think that this is one of the biggest achievements of, the, of, last, uh, of last year. Because uh, I think that m many believe, and I, I subscribe to this as well, that Putin has miscalculated not just the, the will of Ukrainians to fight, but also of the Western community to be united. And yes, obviously, there were hiccups and issues and uh, sanctions that we were unable to impose on imposed not as fast as, for example, we might have wished them to be imposed. But um, but still, we maintained unity, we assisted Ukraine, and I'm thinking I'm quite optimistic for this year as well. Tell us something about Lithuania. You're in, geographically, you're in a very unique position. You've got 
a Russian enclave kind of yeah. embedded inside you. How does the presence of that Russian enclave mm-hmm. in your country make your situation different from your neighbours, perhaps? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's it's an interesting um, geography, honestly, because there are just, you know, we, we joke that there are two countries in the world who have uh, Russia to their west, is Lithuania and Japan. Um, everybody would be thinking about Russia as a country towards, towards the east, but we have two neighbours, both of them are involved in the war, and the second one is Belarus, where we have 700 kilometers of, um, of border with. So the mentality is, especially during the last year, is that we're surrounded, in many cases, by uh, non-friendly countries, non-friendly neighbors. So there is a little bit of resemblance to, uh, to the feeling of, uh, of West Berlin. You know, being in an island, you know, we, we think about Lithuanian island, but obviously, you know, geography provides that there's a Baltic island that has a very narrow um, entry to, uh, to Western Europe. And therefore, we are so much keen on hearing our uh, allies uh, committing to our, to our defense. Same way West Berlin is did when uh, US uh, promised to, to assist them. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned West Berlin, kind of the, the Berlin Wall, symbols of the Cold War that some of us perhaps in Western Europe thought we'd seen the back of. Where do you see the future of, is this a new Cold War? Or can we be more optimistic? Of course, we can be more pessimistic than the yeah. Cold War because it could be a hot war still. Well, it is a hot war in, in Ukraine. Will it be a Cold War or can there be some kind of detente with Russia? Can, can we have cooperation in a fragmented world as this Davos has it, as its theme? Well, Cold War was defined by, um, by a, some sort of a nuclear balance between two superpowers or to, uh, to alliances of some sorts. Uh, um, now we cannot talk about Russia as being a superpower, even though you know, they would uh, still claim, but it's a, it's a claim that is 30 years old and has very little to do with reality. So definitely there is no balance in, uh, uh, between the West and, and Russia. We see that Ukraine, with assistance from the West, was able single-handedly in the sense that it's just Ukrainian soldiers that are fighting in the battlefield that they were able to stop Russia's onslaught. That means that the, the balance is, is long gone. So therefore, it's an impossible to go back to the you know, continuation of 1990s. But definitely many symbols are being uh, revived. And I think it will take, take a while until this phase of whatever Cold War it is will be, will be over. Because I believe in Ukrainian victory, and uh, Lithuania will stand with Ukraine until it it uh, it is it, it manages to um, uh, reconquer back the territories. And I think that the process is started in 2022, uh, uh, February 24th, in Russia, will lead to some sort of instability in Russia. It's almost unavoidable because they started their own demise. And finally, how have you felt that Davos 2023 has talked about this situation? Well, I think that in, in many debates, uh, the situation in Ukraine was taken very seriously. Obviously, there are more issues and uh, it's, it's a global forum. That means that we cannot just focus on, uh, on one region. But it is clear that uh, war in Ukraine is not a regional, regional issue. It, it touches every region in the world. It touches every country one way or another. Therefore, um, I'm still hopeful and uh, some votes in UN have shown that it's possible to have a global, global answer to what is happening in Ukraine. Thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you so much. Right, well, I'm standing outside the Radio Davos booth now. 
We've just come out from recording a segment for the next podcast. I'm going up the big stairs on my left. It's the Congress Hall, where all the big speeches happen. To my right is the health bar, where people can get fresh juices. In fact, there's one called, <laughs> there's pumpkin juice, which doesn't taste as nice as Harry Potter would have you believe. And there's also cabbage and turnip juice I saw yesterday. I mean, you have to hope it does you good. You really do. So now I'm at the top of the stairs in the kind of hallway here, where there are several art installations. And I'm hoping to bump into some of the artists. I'm gonna try my luck over this direction. Okay, where do we start? Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, uh, so my name is Dr. Max Frieder and I am the co-founder and chief creative officer of Artolution. We are an international community-based public arts and education organizations. What that means is we teach artists and educators in different refugee camps, conflict zones, conflict-affected communities, how to do public art with children who've been through trauma, being able to heal through the process of creating large-scale collaborative artworks, whether it be murals, interactive musical sculptures out of trash and recycled materials, puppetry, performance, dance, all as a form of storytelling. Wow, and you do, you do that all over the world or in particular regions? So we have five regional hubs around the world. We worked in 35 countries around the world, but we have five regional hubs, each that has teams of refugee artists and host community artists. Well, tell us about this piece we're standing in front of now. It's very tall. I guess that's about five or six meters high, is it? Um, very colorful mural in four pieces. What looks to be a camp, perhaps? Is that a refugee camp then in the end? It is. So this is the color of resilience. So this piece we've created in four different refugee crisis hotspots around the world. And so this piece, and it actually travels in a geographic trajectory that goes in a circle from east to west or west to east, depending on the way that you look at it. So it starts here in the Rohingya refugee camps, where you can see actually all of the, di the different communities were asked, where did you come from? How did you get to where you are? And what are your dreams for the future? I see. So from left to right, they, that's where they're coming from? Yep, that, exactly. That's and they're looking happier from. on the right, I'm pleased to exactly. say. So who actually painted this? So this was actually painted, led by our team of refugee artists. Mm -hmm. So it was, read by, it was led by a team of half men, half women who were leading these programs with children, mm -hmm. being able to have them tell their stories. So there's over 500 participants on these pieces. So what impact does involvement in art have on people who've suffered a big trauma like being turfed out of their home and have to flee to another country. We do a lot of behavioral studies, looking at pre and post evaluations to really figure out what does this mean? Like what's the actual impact of this work? We look at scales of psychosocial well-being and social and emotional health. So what we've really found is that self-esteem really rises, the idea of social connectivity, that you connect with others, relationship building, and this idea that you have a voice, this idea of efficacy and agency and identity can actually find measurable indicators to find that in pre and post evaluations, it rises over 20%. We found in each of those different indicators that we've been able to find. But the reality is that these voices need to be heard here. They need to be heard at the World Economic Forum and that this data needs to back up the fact that these people need to be humanized and we need to find to be able to democratize resources and access to resilience, both in the sense of actually being able to create artwork, but also being able to take people who are in the private sector, people who are in the public sector, folks who are in the humanitarian development sphere and say arts and culture need to catalyze social change. So when we look at issues around education, livelihoods, when we look at resource generation, we need to be able to say, okay, we, can, we need to use the strengths that already exist in these communities. Mm -hmm. There's some of the most talented, incredible artists mm -hmm. that exist in these communities. They just need to be able to be provided a platform to amplify their messages and to be able to take 
the messages that we're trying to make a difference, like girls' education or food security, nutrition, and that we need to take the talent that's already there to take those messages and bring them to their community and to the world. It's really great you brought this to Davos because here you've got leaders and political leaders and business leaders, and this is a message directly from people really sometimes at the bottom of the pile, isn't it? And they've brought their message here for them to see. Right, and, and I mean, it's pretty crazy in the sense that that actually many of these people are not even allowed to be here. They're not even allowed to leave the locked refugee camps that they're in. So how can we have their voice heard here in a way that can be articulate and dynamic and to make sure that they can be able to have access to actually advocate for their work and, and, and that the real goal is that this can create a, a bridge, right? That this can actually take the unbelievable resources that exist in this space and say, how can we take this and provide a livelihood for people who've never had this access ever before? But for people who aren't here standing like I'm looking up at this huge painting where can they see some of this art can they find it online somewhere yeah so artolution like an evolution or solution or revolution you can find our work artolution.org and you can find us on all the social media platforms and any every dollar matters like for us it's a huge deal like it's not a small deal, it's a huge deal to be able to support artists. And we truly believe that if we can find ways of being able to amplify their voices, that's the next phase in the history of the arts and education. And that if we can take that one little girl or that one person who was able to paint that and say your voice matters, that who you are matters, that that in itself is what we believe can become the next phase in the history of the art space. So Vic, let's turn to you then. You're gonna show me something else down the corridor, right? Yes. Should we just yeah. walk and see it? Yeah, let's do Let's it. go, okay. So Vic, tell us who you are. Um, my name is Vic Muniz. I'm a visual artist. I'm a, a Crystal Award winner 10 years ago. And I've been here a few times and it was a pleasure to come this time just to introduce uh, Max projects to the community here. Uh, I met Max some years ago and actually he, ca he, he came to meet me because I had done a, a documentary that dealt with the project-based uh, interactions with communities in risk that was uh, art related. So uh, initially I had done a project uh, in, a, in a garbage dump in, in Rio, you know, where I brought the people that lived there to work on their own project, on their own portraits, you know, in my studio. And that turned into a film that got an Oscar nomination. That's how I got to meet Max. Great. And he yeah. uh, actually introduced me, uh, invited me to come to the Rohingya camps. And we've been there a few times and we got to meet these artists and got to participate a little bit in their reality. The idea was to actually do a project that was a collaboration between my studio and Artolution. And this is the first installment of this uh, uh, series, you know. Okay, so we're standing in front of, we've moved up the corridor, we're standing in front of a, still a pretty large canvas. Yeah, it's a it's a map that has two kinds of information. When we look at a map, you know, you have lines that are based on political or, or physical uh, uh, references, you know, but we don't, ever get to see how people sense the space around them. Uh, here what you have is the background that is pasted over drawings by the Rohingya children and Rohingya artists and they were asked the question where do you come from, where you are, where are you or where do you want to go and based on this they produce series of drawings or the, the, the pictures that you know that they can be past, present or future we assembled them, we put a real physical map on top of it. You know, it's interesting when you think about refugees, they, they, there's, we're talking about lines, and lines of escape, they're always perpendicular to the lines of, of, of the map. 
They're just people who were crossing these lines and they're sort of like taking in a difficult situation for no reason at all. Having these two things together make you think about, you know, how we look at the world and how we should be looking at it a little bit more careful. You know, Max is working with uh, people and giving value to them, individual value to what their efforts are. And it's, uh, it's interesting to, to put these two things together for people to see what a real map should look like. What a real map should look like, yeah. And this is just a collection of fairly small drawings and paintings by the children, the refugee children in the Ringa camp with this map overlaid on top. Beautiful piece. Well, guys, thanks very much. Thank you. Brazilian artist Vic Muniz speaking to me in the Congress Center in Davos. You also heard Max Frieda, co-founder and chief creative officer of Artolution. For daily coverage of Davos 2023, subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit wef.ch slash podcasts. And follow the action here live and on catch up at wef.ch slash wef23 and across social media using the hashtag wef23. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Editing was by Taz Kelleher. Studio production was by Juan. We'll be back tomorrow for the final day at Davos 2023. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.